there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. Creative people and how they do their thing. It's what I love to talk about. All right, who misses theater? I miss theater, but you don't have to totally miss it because the guest today is actually the star and writer of a one-man show that is currently available to stream online. And it really does feel like a theatrical experience uh, the show is called Hi, Are You Single? Uh, the writer and star is Ryan J. Haddad, and uh, it's about his search for love, connection, sex, a hookup as a gay man with cerebral palsy. He goes to bars, he tries the apps, um, and the show takes some interesting turns that were moving and funny. I laughed, I cried, I deleted Grinder from my phone. Not that I've ever liked Grinder. The interface is a pain in the ass. Not into it. But anyway, the show is really terrific, and it's showing all through the month of February at uh, the Woolly Mammoth Theater Company. We give you the information at the end of the podcast how to find it. So before I get to the interview, though, I just want to get a plug in for You Don't Know My Life, the game that I co-created. And uh, we've been hosting virtual game nights, and the coolest thing to do is reunions, I've discovered. So if there's a group of people that you miss that you want to see, like, I've been doing reunions of, like, people I worked with on Princess Cruises, and then I did a reunion of old friends when I first moved to L.A., and I did one with some people that I worked with on a radio show, and Zoom is perfect for that, because you're not going to get in the car and meet in Vegas for a weekend, but you can log on to Zoom and have a great time. We cater the questions to your group. Um, it's a blast, and because the game takes care of who talks when, the ice is broken easily, it's heaven. And I end up like on a high for the rest of the day. So if you have a group of folks you want to get back together with, hook it up. All you do is do a Facebook invite. You put the link. We host you. It's cheap. You don't know my life.com. All right. That's enough plugging. Here's the interview with Ryan J. Haddad. Joining me via Zoom, it's Ryan J. Haddad. He is the star and the writer of the one person show. Hi, are you single? It's currently available to watch online. I watched it the other night. I laughed. I cried, I fought, I had all the feels. So congratulations. Um, how long have you been doing this show? I've been performing the show since March of 2015. It was my senior thesis or capstone production at Ohio Wesleyan University. Nice, so you've, you've toured around with it, I assume. What, what kind of places have you played? Where have you kind of gone far and wide with it? Well, the first, I would say professional, you know, paying audience was immediately after college. I was in the hot festival of queer performance at Dixon Place on the Lower East Side in Manhattan. And that first sort of, I, that, that is the, was the first paying audience to see it um, is when I brought on my director, Laura Savia. And she has been with me ever since shaping, changing, morphing everything so the version at ohio wesleyan was very raw and and untethered and we have sort of harnessed all of the stories from that original performance to make it what it is today all these years later uh and we toured around with it i mean i did it at williamstown theater festival I did it at the Public Theater here in New York for Under the Radar. I did it at the Guthrie in Minneapolis, Stanford Live 
which is a performance series from Stanford University. And I did it in a gay bar uh, in North Carolina. What was the name of the bar? Legends in, and, and, in, in Raleigh. And, and I was in the room where the drag queens perform, but, I'm, but we determined that the actual drag queen stage was not suitable for the performance, so we sort of reconfigured. And it was very intimate and wildly interesting uh, to do it in a gay bar because, of course, so many of the scenes take place in a gay bar. Yeah, so I would think it was sort of like being at the scene of the crime in a way. Um, well, yeah, and so that audience was, there were two audiences. We did a 7 p.m. and a 9 p.m. And the 7 p.m. was demographically mixed in the way that all my audiences usually are, right? And that was like normal in terms of the energy of the performance. It felt like I was doing it wherever else I had already done it. And then I, and then we get to the 9 PM and it's a bunch of gay men and it's just, it's just gay men. And it was, it was uh, quiet in that room. It was oh, wow. And the first half of the play is meant to be a comedy. So you are supposed to be bouncing with me and making, commiserating a little bit. But I do think that those men that night felt that they're who I was critiquing, which is probably accurate. Yeah. So they, so they were not able to let go and experience it with me until I started to become a little more vulnerable and a little more self-critiquing when I was only critiquing the men in the bars and they were the men in the bars. It was a little bit of an uncomfortable uh, vibe. I can imagine. Yeah. How would you describe the show to someone that didn't know anything about it? Oh, I just did a, a written interview yesterday where I had to type the answers, which I was like, oh my God, you're making me type. But then <laughs> I was like, oh, I actually get to make choices about what I say instead of it just rolling out of my mouth. So I'm going to try that uh, version of what I said. Awesome. The um, Hire You Single is the story of a young gay man who is uh, disabled and horny all the time. <laughs> and, uh, it is an interrogation of the media's tendency to desexualize people with disabilities. Right. And of gay men's unwillingness to welcome disabled people into their spaces. And then finally becomes a self-critique of the character of Ryan, who is, in essence, it is me, but I'm playing the character of myself and a critique of my own spiral toward prejudice and judgment and discrimination of others for things that they cannot control in the same way that my disability is not something I can control. Right. Um, The beginning, you know, first 20 minutes or so, you meet different guys in bars, and, and it really underscores how shitty gay guys can be to each other when they yeah. don't want to fuck the other person. 
I mean, <laughs> it's so brutal. Okay. Yeah. And I think, and I, and I've been on the receiving end of that. I think everyone has, and it's almost like, it's like seeing them back to back like that. It was like, wow. And I could see why guys in that gay bar were, were quiet because they probably been on both sides of that where you rejected somebody, but gosh, you have to be such a dick about it. Um, so I, I, I saw myself in that section. I, I related to a lot of it. Um, and, and when you see those exchanges back to back, it's like, what is going on with us that we're not so nice to each other at all? And it's not, I'm not trying to stereotype. I'm not trying to generalize and say like all gay men are pigs. Right. Um, I will. <laughs> I'll go there. No, I won't. But because no, I mean, somebody I remember, do you remember in the show, there's a period, there's a scene where I, I'm recounting filming a documentary uh, for college, right? And I, I play the, I play the other person. Yeah. In that scene, so if we're getting super meta, like take that scene out, and I'm back in college, I've completed the assignment, and now we're screening the documentaries at my local movie theater. And you might say, because this was long before Hire You Single existed or had any formation, um, the screening of the documentary was, I guess, my first public questioning and interrogation of these issues. And one of the students raised their hand and said, do you feel, does any part of you regret critiquing gay men in this way when our LGBT community is so desperately trying to fight for and keep our rights when half the country is trying to take them away from us? And um, I heard that very, very clearly. And I understand that. So I'm not trying to say, like, take away our rights or, like, we don't deserve love and affection and humanity, but that's just it. I'm being told by gay men implicitly, not like with words, but I'm being told energetically, implicitly, or the subtext of whatever they're saying, that I as a disabled person don't deserve those things. And that is why I don't give a fuck. Um, um, And I'm, I'm, I want a husband. I want a boyfriend first and then a fiance and then a husband. And I want to have a long-term, you know, mutually beneficial, fulfilling, sexy, compassionate relationship. So I can't like shun all the people that I'm interested in courting, right? Or a whole swath of my identity. It is my identity. I am a gay man. And a disabled man. I'm also a Lebanese American man, right? But to have two of these identities kind of at odds with each other, and less so for for when I walk into a disabled space and I say I'm gay, nobody is like, <gasps> "What? Ah!" It's it it only really happens when you're when you're disabled entering a gay space. And when I say I'm saying gay intentionally because. I identify as a gay man, but also because it's specifically cis gay men, uh, cisgender gay men, and often tends to be white gay men, um, 
that do this and behave this way. And, you know, it's the scenes that you saw in the gay bar series happened years ago, five, six, seven, eight years ago. So I'm, I have matured and moved beyond those moments emotionally, right? I can play the, I can play the scenes and effectively communicate emotion to you, but not be torturing myself into in as a human being on the inside. Right. But, but I'm still facing the same issues all these years later. I'm 29. Uh, I'm very single. We're in a pandemic. So I, I feel that everyone who started single is going to end single, but maybe I'm wrong because there are several people who've like found love via the, via the internet and, and then made a quarantine plan and now are in a pod with their new boyfriends or partners. I saw Laverne um, Cox on Ellen talking about her new love. So, you know, yeah. More people power. Are, more yeah. power to those Exactly. People. She was positively I, uh, giddy. It was exciting. Yeah. But I, but I want substance and I've always wanted it long before people my age were sort of ready to experience that even back in undergrad in college I had I had several sexual experiences there uh when I was in when I was in school and I wanted I was like so we're going to meet in our junior year and then we're going to date for two years and then we're going to move in together and then, and then, and then we're going to get married and, and then we have, you know, three kids or not have any kids like that. That's sort of a neutral for me, but you had a plan. No, no one wanted that at the age of 20. Right. <laughs> no one. And so I'm hoping that the older I get, the more, people are ready to make commitments to each other and also hoping that when this horrid umbrella of pandemic and sickness and illness lifts away, that people will have evaluated their values, yeah. you know, and decide what is it that I actually want in my life? If we, if we reach, if we find ourselves in another global pandemic, do I want to walk in on the same foot as I did this last time? Or do I want someone who belongs to me and I belong to them? So I don't know. I'm just pontificating. And I, I, I love being gay. I'm very proud to be gay. I'm very proud to be disabled. That's part of my identity. There's no part of me that wants to be fixed or thinks there's anything wrong with me. Um, I just wish that I was as embraced or as embraced by my own community as I feel that we purport to embrace each other when we don't actually, because it isn't isn't just disability. It's not, it's, um, 
its age and weight and, and body size and type. And do you have hair? Do you not have hair? It's HIV status, it's race, it's muscle, it's, you know, short, tall, anything that isn't like the ideal specimen. Right. It's slowly and slowly pushed to the margins inside what is already a marginalized community that is supposed to want acceptance from the world, but doesn't know how to accept each other. Yeah. And what the play, you know, what the latter half of the play explores, I know you've seen it, but for your listeners is that I know I am not exempt from that critique of the discrimination. Like I'm very aware that I am a gay man and I have these attitudes that have been instilled about who I should and should not be dating and why and when. And it's sticky and messy and ugly at times. So it isn't just, oh, poor Ryan, poor Ryan. No, no. Uh, Ryan gets, gets prickly and gets pointed and is not as nice. Uh, as, as he should be. And so like, I'm, I spend the first half of the play being like, why am I not accepted? And then the second half is me not accepting other people. So it's a cycle. Right. right? Having to deal with that. Yeah. And they're asking why that, um, you talk about in the play, how the scenes in the gay bar where people are so cold that up until then in your family life and things like that, you, you experienced some prejudice and, and stuff like that, but yeah. but nothing compared to what you were getting there. So talk a bit about your upbringing and, and, and your family and, and growing up and why it was such a avalanche when it started pouring down in that way. I was born and raised in a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio called Parma. And I had two older brothers who were both star students and we're both athletes and we're both very popular and had all these friends and they were very, they are very straight, uh, heterosexual guys. So I was always like looking up to them. And I also had parents who were big champions of me, big supporters of me and fierce advocates because when you're a little kid you don't have the tools to advocate for yourself and you the hand you're dealt is dictated in many ways on the kind of parents that you have especially if you are disabled because if and there are many who have disabled children and are ashamed of the disability or want to hide the disability or want to cure the disability or want to ignore the disability. And, and that is damaging for the child and leads to internalized ableism where we're trying to fight against ableism. But how can we do that when many in our group of disabled individuals, you know, are not empowered from a young age to embrace who they are and to be proud of disability instead of see it as 
a great this great limitation or this great tragedy of their lives. Right. I never see it that way. And I would never see it that way because I've had a lot of education since moving to New York about disability and all that kind of stuff. But I also know that I never saw it that way because I was raised by parents who made me proud of who I am. And there were times when, you know, they want, they wanted me to be like everybody else. They wanted me to blend in. And so I'm not saying that it's like they wore disability pride t-shirts or something like that, but I know that my sense of worth comes from my parents and my brothers who, who I look up to can still, you know, I still look up to them, even though our lives are very different and our, paths and trajectories very different i look up to them and i know that they're proud of me and they always have been and that gave me confidence the four of them and i probably i know i i know that i wouldn't take space on a stage for an hour at a time if i if i wasn't told from the beginning that what i had to say was worth that's beautiful. What was your coming out like with your family or in general? Uh, uh, this is a scene in another one of my plays. Actually, I hope you'll some someday the world will see when live theater returns. I love it. I, I can look forward to it. Uh, it is my first multi-character play. Uh, and it is about my gay uncle and I and our experiences uh, being young gay men in the same family a generation apart and so in sorry I have to, <clears throat> um in that play you have my whole coming out scene which is now a comedy right right years later and but didn't feel quite as comedic as it was happening i came out at 16 because i met a hot boy at musical theater camp who I mistook to be straight and then scolded him for the way he was talking to a girl who I assumed he was attracted to. And he said, oh, Ryan, don't worry. It doesn't even matter. I'm gay. And as soon as I learned that this hot, hunky, straight, seeming individual, I know that that's a problematic term, but like he passed as straight for four out of five days. Right. And as soon as I found out that he was gay, I was like, woo, like, I'm, I'm ready. It's and on. It's, it's on. And, but I didn't, I had never said to another person that I was gay. I remember that was the summer between freshman and sophomore year of college. And, oh, excuse me. That's a lie. I always mix up high school and college. So high school. Which is really annoying when I'm in the play, when I'm like doing the play, and I'm like, and this happened in high school. Right. And they're like, ah, no, it's terrible. That's a horrible thing to happen to a high schooler. Right. Um, between freshman and sophomore year of high school is when I came out. And I remember at the very end of freshman year, there was one elevator in our building. It was 
in the Board of Education offices, which were connected to my high school, but I needed to access it. So like, I was supposed to be the only, one of the only kids who were using the elevator other than people who were like temporarily injured and stuff. Sure. And I remember getting in on like the last day of freshman year and the door closed and I see just someone wrote like in big letters the word gay. G-A-Y. They might have used the word fag. I don't remember, but let's just say to not make it too dramatic that it says the word gay. And I thought, well, there was a moment of like, oh, yeah, I think I, yeah, I think I am. And maybe by the next time I walk back into the school, I will have come to terms with that and admitted it. So now here's this hot guy and I'm super into him. But I'm afraid to say anything. I'm afraid to have a heart to heart and be like, well, I'm gay too. And can we talk about it? Because I felt an obligation. I don't, I don't actually know why. I couldn't, like, I can't tell you the exact reason, but I felt an obligation to have my parents be the first people I told. So I went home and then the day after the camp was over, July 19th, I was, we were in the living room and we were having an argument or something. And they said, why are you so angry? And I said, I'm angry because I'm gay. Wow. You said it in the, in the midst of an argument. Yeah. And I don't, like maybe it had something to do with a homophobic remark. I don't, I don't remember. Right. You don't, in the play, you don't, you don't get that. Um, because I don't remember it and I don't want to sort of vilify unnecessarily because there's no reason to. Um, the first thing my father said to me was, you're our son and we'll love you no matter what. And my mother, my mother was always, I knew was going to be supportive, you know, but my, uh, my dad, I worried about. And so for that to be the first thing out of his mouth was a huge relief. And then they left because we were in the midst of an argument and I did it, you know, five minutes before they were about to leave the house. Right. Their, their friend was in their drive, the driveway to pick them up. And they were like, we, should we tell them to leave? And I was like, no, 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 go, go, go. You know, do, do your thing. Do, do your thing. And then I sat and cried for three hours thinking about them saying, you know, we'll love you no matter what. And I was listening to No One Is Alone, Stephen Sondheim. Right. And then they came home and they had a lot of questions and they had time to ruminate. And so they needed help understanding. And some of those questions are complete, you know, were legitimate and some of them were completely wacky and off the wall and were things that parents just need to work through. Right. When this happens and someone, you know, someone much smarter than me a long, long time ago said, and I can't remember who it was, the work that we did to get to the point of being able to say I'm gay took so long that your parent also is now starting at zero right? with that. And they need the sensitivity and the time, especially if the first thing they say is you're our son and we'll love you no matter what. It's not like I was being thrown out into the street or anything even remotely close to bad. I was completely positive but they still needed to work through it 
and then working through it. That is the comedy. That is the scene in my uh, one of my future plays because it's just fun to, yeah. to look back to look back and 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 of course I was angry at how could you ask something like that right. you know at sixteen. But I was also a brat. I was a snotty little brat at 16. Right. And looking back, it's like, well, of course, they needed three hours is not enough time. Right. And and uh, no, they're wonderful. And they've seen Hire You Single a dozen or more times live. They're really, really. And they travel to see it, even though they've seen it so often. And now this for the first time, they'll be able to watch it in their living room. I love that. Were you ever able to tell the musical theater guy from camp that you were gay, or did that all happen after? Oh, you left? immediately. So they left. I cried just singing "No One Is Alone." Of course. And then it was like type, 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 type. Hello, I'm gay. I have feelings for you. Kind of like wow, boom, right out of the gate, right away. And he definitely didn't reciprocate at all. Ah, but you <laughs> did tell him. You did share it. I did, and we and we formed a friendship but even then at 16 my very first like crush of significance we formed a friendship but i still sort of held out hope that he would change his mind and want to be more than friends and that never happened uh and that's fine you know you learn and you grow and nobody and nobody owes you affection you've got it you you have to earn it and you also have to be respectful when somebody says, I'm not interested in this. Thank you very much. Um, but I just think I, even then at 16, like I just wanted a real, I wanted a romance and I wanted a real connection. Yeah. And I don't think people at 16 in the world already, let alone gay men in Parma, Ohio, <laughs> let alone gay men in Parma, Ohio, entertaining the idea of being with a disabled person. Now, is that final point valid? No, it's completely fucked up. And, you know, I wish that I didn't, that I wasn't such a late bloomer sexually or romantically, and that I had had the, teenage experiences that I know my peers were having, I do attribute it to the disability. And I hope that we get to a point where the sexuality and sexualization, uh, hypersexuality, as I like to do in my play, or demonstrate in my play, will seep into the popular culture uh, that of disabled people, the sexuality of disabled people, so that more people see the images and understand the story and start to realize, oh, that guy is really cute. That girl is really cute. That non-binary person is fabulous. Yeah. Um, and they're disabled and they have a walker, a wheelchair, a prosthetic leg, a leg brace, a cane, or they are autistic or blind or deaf. Deaf is not, um, the deaf community doesn't exclusively apply the term disability to themselves, even though you know, we sort of are paired together. 
they see deafness as a language and an identity on all their own. And so, but there are a whole host of names of disabilities and types of disabilities and mental and social and emotional and physical and all of that, cognitive or not. Um, and the, you know, a major setback, I think, in storytelling for the whole century of TV and film so far. Yeah. And, and also for years and years and years before that in the theater is that we were never brought into the stories in a really full-bodied way. Yeah. Full-bodied, not being, and not, you know, I'm not making, I'm not being funny. It's not. Right. But in a way that is fully complex and rounded and shows passion and sensuality and romance and intimacy and just pure fucking sex. That's right. You, you talk in the show about the show special, the television series and seeing that and, and what kind of an effect it had on you. What was it like when you first saw that? Cause it, it, it was somebody that, that, uh, that, that was disabled that had the full sexual relationship. who was the center of the story basically. Yeah. It, well, it was his story. He created right. It. Which Did part of you feel scooped? You're like, wait, this <laughs> or were you? Did, no, 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 no. I, I think there's room for absolutely everybody. Awesome. And all kinds of stories. There, there cannot be just one right. because there isn't, and no story is the same. So Ryan, on. First of all, he's very, very kind to me and supportive of me and my work. And I reciprocate back to him. I mean, I really think that he broke incredible ground being the first to lead his own series of his own creation, starring in it, writing it, and, you know, continuing. There's a season two that is not out yet, but it will soon be. And so... I was elated to be watching it and it was joyful to be watching. And also I'm fully happy to acknowledge that not everything depicted in that was representative of my life. It need not be. That isn't the point. It's one character. Right. Just like my one character is not going to be representative of every gay person or every disabled person. It's just not. So I'm watching it with sort of, this is really nice. And I'm, happy and excited for Ryan and the work and for millions and millions of people to see this show and just so elated that it exists, that the story exists and that Ryan is the first to open a door for many more of us to come through. And then you get to episode three and that is the, the, the first sex scene. Right. And the character, Ryan's character, also named Ryan, is is preparing to experience penetrative sex for the first time. Right. Which is something that I, at that point, had only recently experienced myself, you know. Right. The, the very top of higher you single, I established that 
the character of Ryan has not experienced that. He still has not experienced it by the end of the play. But in my like life, I had a, like finally that door had opened much later than it had for you know my gay contemporary. Sure. And so, and here's Ryan playing a character that's older than I was, and was doing this for the first time. And so there was something about a the vulnerability of that, owning that it's the first time being scared of, you know, what's going to happen? What's my body going to do? And am I going to be okay? Wanting someone you can trust. And then also just seeing it, like the scene as it was choreographed with him on the bed and and the the partner preparing to enter, you know, open the legs and enter him. And, and that. like what a life-changing moment that is. And that felt like you just taken a spoon and scooped it up out of my heart and experience. And I, I had never been able to watch anything and say that is me. Right. That is. So, it, and that's a five-minute scene. Yeah. But it was a five-minute moment in my life that changed my whole life, and was a was was something I had been waiting for for so long because partially because I had never seen it anywhere. Because it didn't, because no representation of it existed. Right. Be able to tell a young gay person with cerebral palsy, like, it's okay. You're going to be fine. Don't be scared. And there it was a year after I had experienced it. So, I mean, imagine if I had seen that before. Yeah. But it's there now. And, I I am, uh, as I said, I'm friendly with Ryan. I'm not involved in the show special. So I can't, I have no real information about what's coming in season two. But I have to hope that we're getting more of that in the second season because, because of how important and groundbreaking it was and that what a deficit we are for it. And I want more stories. And yeah. I want I, I want to do my sex scenes on TV, which I can promise you are very different, will be very different than, than Ryan's. Even yeah. though I say that that scene is right out of my life. Like, I think that, you know, two gay men with cerebral palsy have the capacity to create two wildly different television experiences. And wouldn't it be fabulous if we had five, ten women doing the same thing and across the spectrum of disability beyond cerebral palsy and people of color, my God, I mean, the vast majority of disability representation in the media is white. And so um, there are just so many versions of so many different stories that I'm 
excited to hopefully be part of talent. Yeah. And I am grateful that Ryan knocked the door down because it was a hard door to knock and kick. Yeah. And he did it. And I know that it took a while. I mean, I, he's literally posted on Instagram, like the first day we went and pitched it to a bunch of places, like everyone said no. Right. And who knows how many years ago that was in relation to when it actually came out. Yeah. They take forever, things like this. Um, well, they take, like to make something takes forever, but to get a green light for something that has no history right. of success because the representation doesn't exist makes executives go, is this really sellable? Is this really something that people will watch? Is this even... Mm, and it's like, and it's and it's their fault. It's those people in the suits, and who make the decisions. And and I say suits. I'm sure it could be women too. Um, it's not. And and women can wear suits, you know. But it's executives who have to raise their hand and say yes, and greenlight these stories being told. Yeah. Uh, because we have so much ground to cover and we have so much time to make up for. Yeah. Um, you mentioned your musical theater um, background. I, I poked around on your website. You're a wonderful singer. I would, oh. If I sang like that, I would be singing in that show. Um, so talk to me about singing and is it something you want to incorporate in other projects or and why yeah, you didn't I, in this one? Did it not make sense for this one? There were early iterat earlier iterations that had a little bit of a snippet of a song in it. Yeah. And we just, um, again, the show changes and matures and grows. Nice. And I, along with my director, Laura Savia, and our co-director for this digital production, Jess McLeod, who is absolutely wonderful and came in because it was during COVID and because Laura Savia was not able to travel, uh, the three of us in the middle of rehearsals for this filming said, like, I don't think we need the song anymore. There you go. And they, and they weren't, they weren't wrong. Right. And, I, and I agree with them. If I don't agree with them, oh boy, do we have a little, you know, we have to, we got to work out our differences, but more often than not, there's such trust that if they say something like that definitive to me, I know that it's for the best of the piece. And so, yes, there are other um, other work. I've done, I've done a cabaret at Joe's Pub in New York, and I sing a little snippet of something in the gay uncle play, Good Time Charlie. Nice. Uh, so I'm not averse to singing, but I don't want to, you know, just shoehorn it in as like, Look what I can do. As like a star search kind of thing. You know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It has to be like work for the piece. Um, there's a dedication at the end that I noticed. Yes. Kevin. Kevin. Can you talk about that? I can. Um, do you have, have you seen any like copy that tells who it is? No, yet? I, I, I didn't okay. know. I think it's going to be in the, in the, in the, pro, in the playbill, the okay. digital playbill. Um, Kevin Moore is, was the 
former managing director of Woolly Mammoth Theatre Company, which is where we filmed this production and the people who produced this production. And then Kevin moved on to be the managing director. So he took the same position at a different theater, the Cleveland Playhouse. And I'm from Cleveland. And so uh, obviously the Cleveland Playhouse has been very significant to my upbringing. It's where I saw my first children's theater play at the age of three. And I performed there and I've done like, you know, growing up, I was, I was, it was significant. The Cleveland Playhouse was a significant part of my theatrical upbringing. And then in 2018, with Kevin Moore as managing director, it was selected for the New Ground Theater Festival at the Cleveland Playhouse. So one of the, the one of the places that I, you know, didn't mention when you earlier asked was the Cleveland Playhouse. So I'm so glad that you brought it up now. So I'm there for a week. I went basically went home and I stayed with my parents. And they gave me a travel and housing stipend because I was saving the money by not, you know, taking a hotel or anything like that. Right. And um, and we did three performances in a little black box at the Cleveland Playhouse for about 100 people a night. And it was very well sold. And I remember Kevin was in one of the first few rows one evening. And... Then I don't remember if it was the same evening or if it was a different one, but on a closing performance of the whole festival, so there were lots of different artists from lots of different shows. He sat down in uh, in a little armchair in this suite. I don't know. It wasn't a suite. It was just a little restaurant area. I don't know. It was nicely. The ambiance was nice, candle lit sort of thing. Right. And he just opened up to me and said what it meant to him to have this kind of representation at the Cleveland Playhouse, at his home theater of 11 years or however long it had been at that time. I think that was a loosely uh, accurate guess. And I didn't, I thought he meant, you know, disability because that is the sort of star of the show. It's a critique of the gay community through the lens of disability, right? And he said, no, 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 no. Like, sure, yes, but I'm talking about being gay. And I went, oh, but I just, I just ripped them apart. And myself, <laughs> like, what are you trying? And he goes, no, no, no. And I'm going to quote him now. I don't know that it's, you know, I don't know the literal facts of what he was saying. But this was the quote. Um, you just played the third gay character that we have had on our stages at the Cleveland Playhouse since I took over as managing director. And I went, I'm so sorry. What did you just say to me? Yeah. First of all, I'm playing myself, so I don't know what kind of, like, and I just did it in a black box for a hundred people a night for three nights. Like I wasn't in your main season and, you know, people didn't come and see me 300 at a time for a month. What are you talking about? A gay, you're talking about gay play, like a gay play. He said, no, I'm talking about actually just a gay character. That's shocking. And this was, you know, 
a man who was married to a man. Right. It means someone is capital G, gay. There are lots of different sexual identities. But it's a man married to a man who literally, um, clear, you know, not disabled in any way, was just so grateful for the gay representation, which feels, because I come from, I live in New York. So it feels kind of like there's always a gay play. Yeah, Boys in the Band or any yeah. of these shows where there's 20, you know. Right. And, and so to hear what it meant to him as a man of a certain age, much too young, by the way, um, to have passed away. Um, and very suddenly, I think in November, yeah, November of 2020 or late October or early November, because I was in Washington filming it. Right. And I just started, uh, I was sitting in my artist housing and I just started sobbing when I saw it. And I immediately wrote to the, you know, every person on staff at the Cuban Playhouse that I had their email saying like how gut-wrenched I was and what it meant for me to recall that conversation, one really significant conversation. Managing director is the business guy, right? right. So not, not the person who chooses the shows or who line produced it or who I was, who's my point of contact. So it's not like I had, you know, hours and hours and months and months of memories and experience with him. But the fact that he gave me that gift of sitting down and saying what my show meant to him as a person in a same-sex marriage. I right. keep resisting the, I, the word gay. Um, um, just because I, you know, I, I there are many identities. Um, and he's not here to tell me what one way or the other. Um, but to just tell me what it meant to see a story that felt close to his own. Yeah. And that he, and what it meant to do it in his space, in his home theater. Right. Um, it was really powerful. And I was so touched and so grateful that he would be that open with me. And also, um, and, and then he said, you know, before I was here, I was at Willie Mammoth. So, right. so the fact that when he died, I was sitting in an apartment at Willie Mammoth preparing to film this, it just felt like I wanted to pay tribute to this man who had a significant impact of me, on me in my hometown. And I knew the theater was, was going to want to pay tribute to him. And we were one of the first, not the first, but one of the first offerings to come out of the pandemic from Willie Mammoth. So it was just, you know, it's a simple, it's a simple little epigraph, but it, it feels, um, it feels really important to just honor him. And I remember I had already like asked, could we do this tribute? And of course, Willie Mammoth was so thrilled to say yes. And we were, it was the night before filming. We had one day of filming. And it was Saturday night. It was late and everyone was 
hired from tech and but all the designers were like still having a meeting and I waited around because I wanted to be to walk me back to my place friends collaborators you know just so that I don't have to be alone and so I walk in and I sit down in an aisle seat near the back because that's what was accessible while they're still having their meeting and I look down and there's a gold plaque and it says Kevin Moore. I just got chills. And they had, you know, commemorated that seat to him and they right. said, this is Kevin's chair. This is where Kevin always sat. And the commemorating, he had just died. So it wasn't that, that it was because he had died. It no, was yeah. for a sort of honor whenever he left William Mammoth to go to the Cleveland Playhouse that they said, we're going to dedicate this chair to you. Um, and then I said, to, I asked Maria Goyanis, the artistic director, what is this? And she goes, oh, that, that, that was Kevin's chair. And so we knew that we knew that we needed to do something. And uh, it's simple, but it feels uh, really important to me. And I'm, I'm very honored to have been able to, to offer that. I love that. It just shows you that you never really know how your work as a creative person is going to affect somebody. Somebody that you may think would never appreciate it, could t touch them profoundly. What are some of the memorable responses you've gotten? Maybe something that surprised you in, in all the times of doing this. Sure, sure, sure. Um, in Minneapolis, a transgender individual told me that, like, clearly this is not a show about being transgender. And they hoped I didn't mind, but it made them feel seen and validated and reminded them of their story. Wow. And clearly I had not, I mean, I hadn't, that's not the play. Like that's right. not, but the fact that I could help provide even like a tangential form of representation for that person in Minneapolis, Minnesota, that transgender individual was really a surprise. And again, like something that absolutely moved me. And I was really, really um, just touched. You yeah, never know. Beautiful. You never know. And there, are, I mean, there are lots of people who think like we're friends because they've seen the play. Right. But I'm not, like, I don't know who is sitting out there in the dark. So it always surprises me. You know, I'm on television now. So to be recognized for TV is not, a, is not something I'm surprised by anymore. But I am still surprised even after The Politician having aired for two seasons, streamed for two seasons, that... There are people I don't know who will tell me that they've seen one of my live plays. Because up until this very moment, there was never a sort of digital, there was never a digital opportunity to see this play. Right, you had to be there. So if you saw it, you had to show up and had bought a ticket. And it baffled me that anybody who didn't know me would do that. But I'm hoping that, you know, my audience is growing, grow, and I just have to get over that sort of surprise. But so the idea of like, did I think that that was going to happen in Minneapolis? No, but I'm 
really grateful that that transgender person said that to me. And also, you know, it, I don't know how to say this. The idea that they like apologized. Right. Because they weren't sure that I would feel like it was appropriate for them to have those feelings. Of course it is. Of course it is. And thank you for, for, for the gift of telling me what it meant to you. Yeah. I don't know what it means to individual people. <laughs> um, it is a play for disabled audiences and it is a play for non-disabled audiences and LGBT and not LGBT and, you know, all races and ages and kinds of humanity hopefully will take something from the piece. Yeah. Um, that's the goal, I think, personally, of autobiographical and personal narrative storytelling. That's the goal. But it is rare that somebody will, that I will find out exactly what it meant to a certain individual. Right. Um, you mentioned the politician. You've, you've also been on Bull and the uh, Kimmy Schmidt show. What <laughs> the Kimmy Schmidt? I, 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 it's a long title, but it's something, something, something. Kimmy Schmidt. The un unbreakable. unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. I should know that because of the theme song. What's your favorite day that you've ever had working on a TV show? Um, the politician is just so fun, and they you like you know, especially the young cast who right. I most of my scenes with. Um, yeah, I, there's a great scene on your website with you and Ben Platt. I love yes. him. Is he cool? He's so sweet. Oh, he's good. So, he's cool and sweet and adorable and nerdy and kind. The kindest, kindest, kindest. And when you are the lead, you set the tone for the way people treat each other on set. And he's a young lead, to be sure, but he is the lead. And he, the level of graciousness and humility, he just made everyone fall in love with each other uh, because of his like oozing love for each one of us. And, you know, I know that not every TV set has that experience. So it is, I'm very grateful uh, to his, the way that he carries himself yeah. as a human, not just an unspeakably talented star, but also a great, great, great man. I would say I have three <laughs> a days I'm going to give you. Okay. I enjoy, I did enjoy that scene, uh, smoking the joint outside the hospital. Right. It, it was quite fun. And it was also the first scene in which I think Andrew, the character, really got to like peel back and show a little bit of who he was underneath. Right. The, asshole and then i had my scene my i guess i mean how could you top this day but i had um back-to-back -back scenes with jackie hoffman and bet midler that were jackie in the morning and bet midler at the in the afternoon holy shit that was just a gay man's dream of course and, I mean, and a musical theater fan dream like right. i just like it was everything about it. I know I've just blasted out the podcast speakers. It's all right. Um, and they were both 
very kind and very funny and very different to work with. It was, it was, they were, it was not the morning, you know, the lunch break was very different. They were just different um, personalities, but both so sweet. And I really enjoyed and like these people who I've admired my whole life to be able to be one of two people in the scene together is like a real, like, is this happening? Like, is yeah. this actually happening to me? And, but then I think about like, again, like the young people. And when I say young, I mean everyone in their 20s and early 30s. Right. Who most of my scenes were with. There was a day when we watched Ronnie Jones do her monologue in season two, episode three. The title is Cancel Culture. And she is talking about cultural appropriation and what it is to be a black woman in the middle of a white campaign and also to be a black woman in America. Right. Or a black person in America. And it was a masterclass in acting, take after take after take after take after take after take, complete, brilliant, oh my God. And then it was it was our last day before the holiday break, like that, that day. So that's what we were filming. But then film, a, a day on the a film set is eight, 10, 12 hours of doing the same thing a million times from different camera angles. But then you have like 20 minute breaks all the time because every time they move a lens or change the position of the camera, like you're always on break. And then, I mean, it's hard work, but you, there are lots of times when you get to go and sit down. Um, So when you get to go and sit down, I don't know how it is with COVID anymore. That this is probably a devastating after effect of the industry uh, of the pandemic on the industry. But you know, we all sort of sat in a row in our cast chairs and just like by this time we had known each other for almost a year and a half, two years. Right. We loved each other and we were a kind of family and friendly and we just had the ball, like the best time and we're constantly having snacks from craft services. <laughs> and because it is the end, because it's the holiday, I remember they, and also because it was Ronnie's monologue, like we just all had to stand there and watch the monologue. Like we, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't a hard acting day for me. Right. Um, so they, at, in, you know, after sundown, I can't remember how many hours we had left. They're like, the milkshakes are here. And they brought us these giant milkshakes that all had like a donut on top of them. Oh my God. And it was like the best thing I've ever tasted. And also like, if again, the reason I said like, thank God we were just watching Ronnie act. Because if I had had to do any acting, <laughs> I I wouldn't probably have eaten the milkshake. Right. Um, but I was like, this is great. And there's like, you know, and there are pictures of us with our milkshake. So that was like, that's what a day on a set also feels like. It's yeah. not about when I gave my Tour de Force monologue or when I worked with a uh, 
legend or two in the same day. Right. But I also think these young people are legends. I think Ronnie Jones is a legend in the making. And I'm so grateful that we had her voice and her presence to give the weight, give weight to the story and make a speech like that um, for all of you to marvel at. And also that we all could have a day together where we were just like having fun and being friends and eating milkshakes. What situation is not made better by somebody saying the milkshakes are here? Yes! (laughs) I think I might name this episode that. Um, Tell people how they can see your show, because I know it's available through two different theater companies. Yes! Okay. Hi, Are You Single is streaming on demand from Wooly Mammoth Theater Company and I Am a Theater Company. Uh, I have been told to spell out Wooly Mammoth. So that is the address that I'm going to give. Right. Go to woollymammoth.net, W-O-O-L-L-Y mammoth.net, W-O-O-L-L-Y mammoth.net. And you can buy your tickets uh, at any time, and you can watch at any time between February 1st through 28th. It's an on-demand thing. So you buy... And I'm not supposed to use the word tickets. They gave me a sheet and were like, don't say these words. Very hard not to say those words. But uh, purchase access to a link of the stream. And you'll get this link and you you can watch it at any time. But the moment that you hit play to access the link, you then have 48 hours. 48 hours. I like it. People can watch it on Valentine's Day. You absolutely can. And I can tell you now, this is recorded. We were recording this at the end of January. There is not a Valentine in sight. And I know that we're in the middle of a pandemic. But if you feel like you might want to be my Valentine and you feel like I might find you attractive, then you uh, feel free. You know, I have a filter on my DMs, but I check them from time to time. There you go. All right. It's important. Uh, This is on Instagram, right? Yeah. What are you on Instagram? Don't add me on Facebook. That is really crazy when people do that. What's your Instagram? (laughs) At Ryan, R-Y-A-N-J, Haddad, H-A-D-D-A-D. Now, in the play, you talk about the different apps, your Scruffs and your Grinders. Which Uh one, I feel like Scruff has the better interface. Grinder sucks. Yeah, I got rid of Grinder because it was bad for my mental health. There you go. Literally the interface and the way that people just were like, dick, question mark. I would be like, no, it's not happening. Do you have any of the apps on your phone? Did you get rid of all of them? Oh my God, no. I have them all except Grindr. All right. Interesting. Yeah. I don't like the yellow. I feel like it's just not, it's no, not a fan. Grindr is still mentioned in the play, so I shouldn't say that because maybe they'll become a corporate sponsor. There you go. You love them. When we go off Broadway. You love that. Uh, All right. Uh, this has been delightful talking to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, thank you. One more question for you. What would you love to do? What's your dream gig? Oh, I want all the plays that I had written prior to the pandemic to be produced because they were there was momentum behind them, and I worry that some of that momentum has stalled. So sure. I'm hoping... I'm hoping that live theater returns and that I get to tell the stories that I've poured my heart in for five years, um, that include, including Hire You Single. 
which I hope will have an off-Broadway run. And so I want my plays to be done. I would like to, um, I would like to make a television show that centers me as a gay, disabled, sexy, complicated lead surrounded by a Lebanese American family that is brash and loud and opinionated and full of love and arguments. Right. Uh, and then I would like to star in a romantic comedy, maybe even one that I didn't write. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah. And then I would like to do some musical theater roles or some specific theater roles, uh, musicals that in, they include um, The Man in Chair and the Drowsy Chaperone, the MC in Cabaret, and either of the two men in La Cage aux Faux. I don't care. It'll depend on who the opposite person is. I'll That's play nice. either one. And there's a play that, other than seeing special and seeing the mirror image of myself about to have sex for the first time, uh, penetrative sex for the first time, the, the biggest and greatest form of theatrical representation I've ever experienced was as a gay man, not as a disabled man. And it was Gideon Glick's stellar performance as Jordan Berman and Significant Other. So I will do that anywhere. I'll do that in someone's basement. I will do that in a carburetor. That's not a place, but I will do that. <laughs> I would I'll love to back. see you do that show in a carburetor. I'll go back to the gay bar in North Carolina. Right. I mean, I just love that place so much. And I felt so viscerally represented by it. And Gideon is one of the greatest actors alive. And uh, I want to hand deliver him a Tony Award that performance, even though he was robbed even of a nomination that year. Yeah. Uh, he's a stupendous actor, and his performance was so good that I saw it twice in 48 hours. Wow. He turned it around. All right. Well, I think people should see your performance in Hire You Single that's streaming all through February. Uh, it, it moved me. It made me laugh. It made me think. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. It has been the same. I really appreciate it, Dennis. You have a great great evening day week midnight whatever time say all of it whatever time it is that people have us in their ears <laughs> exactly all right um, bye ryan i hope to meet uh, you sometime in person that'd be fun i hope so too okay take care bye thanks again to ryan j harad check out his show hi are you single okay so this happened nothing much happened right we're all in lockdown but la relaxed outdoor dining uh, yesterday or the day before. Anyway, me and my roommate went out to Pitfire Grill Pizza and sat outside and had pizza. And I'm telling you, it was like the most exciting thing that I've ever done in my life. Like we we ordered dessert because we just and then you would somebody would be sitting at a table way across the way, and it was like, oh, that's a man. And look, his pants fit in an interesting way. He's kind of cute. Like just seeing people in the world. It was just the best. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. So anyway, hopefully everyone's staying safe and doing what they can. But boy, having just that that little bit of like uh, world was really, it did, a, it did a body good. All right, that's it for this week. Uh, hope to catch you next time. And thanks for listening. This is Dennis, anyone. Bye. <laughs>